We are looking forward this morning to uh, getting back into our study of the book of Leviticus. So if you've got your Bibles, please open them to Leviticus chapter 12. And um, if you don't have your own Bible with you, uh, please find one in a pew nearby. Let me first um, take us back to something we said last week. We were talking uh, last week about the fact that as I prepare to preach through a biblical book, there are certain passages that are in the back of my mind, certain passages that I know are coming, and that I'm kind of always anticipating. In Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 16 is one of those, the Day of Atonement. And for me, what we looked at last week in chapter 11 is one of those, dealing with the dietary laws, all of the misunderstanding and the apologetic um, applicability and all of the New Testament commentary on that subject makes that a very interesting thing to deal with as we're working through our study in, in Leviticus. That's chapter 11. Then there's chapter 12. You see, just as there is this almost unconscious list of passages I'm looking forward to preaching, there's another list kind of running parallel to that in the back of my mind. And those are passages that I know are coming that I would like to find some way of avoiding, perhaps. You know they're coming, but they're in a completely different category than the first list. And this chapter we're dealing with today is on that other List. It's on that list of passages which make me ask, isn't there someplace else I have to be that Sunday? Right. Or perhaps, might not this be a passage which would provide a growing, profitable experience for Joe as he hones his preaching skills? It's a strange thing, really. I read through this text and I come across words that are not part of my normal vocabulary. Some of the words that we read here in chapter 12, which is God's Word, I'm not used to saying out loud in mixed company. And so I confess I come to the pulpit this morning with some degree of discomfort, which I am aware might very well be a source of amusement to some of you. But on a more serious note, let me say this as well. I consider my feelings toward the preaching of this passage as something for which I am compelled to lift my voice to God in thanksgiving. We live in a time and a place and a culture in which it seems embarrassment is a thing of the past. No one hesitates to say anything anymore to anyone 
the idea that some things ought not be spoken never seems to cross anyone's mind. There is a lack of shame. There's a lack of sensitivity. There is a hardness of heart. There is a searing of the collective cultural conscience. And it's because of that that I see my discomfort as evidence of God's grace in my life. I'm glad these things make me uncomfortable. At the same time, we don't want to be more puritanical than God. This is the Word of God, and so in all seriousness, we will read every word of it, even when those words are not things we would normally speak of in mixed company. Because we know that God has a word for us in this passage. So Leviticus chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, When a woman gives birth and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days, as in the days of her menstruation she shall be unclean. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall remain in the blood of her purification for thirty-three days. She shall not touch any consecrated thing, nor enter the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks, as in her menstruation. And she shall remain in the blood of her purification for sixty-six days. When the days of her purification are completed, for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the doorway of the tent of meeting a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her, and she shall be cleansed from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, whether a male or female. But if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, the one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she will be clean. Father, help us this morning. Show us what you have for us in your word. You have promised that it is profitable. Make it so. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Well, most of us have seen the pictures, and many of us have been in the pictures in one capacity or another. There is a newborn baby in the arms of its mother, and standing behind them is the proud father looking upon them. We used to keep those pictures in what we called photo albums. Now we keep them in the cloud. But they always provide us that happy scene from a hospital room, and we see those pictures, and we say, Aww. 
And then we open our Bibles to Leviticus 12. And we read that the mothers of newborn babies are said to be unclean and unfit for worship at the tabernacle. And we're not sure we like that. It doesn't seem right. Why should God's law appear so insensitive to mothers? And why are fathers let off the hook? This is all part of God's design, after all. From the very first chapters of Genesis, we're told that this is part of what God has said is good. It's His design. It's His creation. What on earth, then, is going on here? Well, even that question helps us to get an answer. What on earth is going on here? This is about what is going on on the earth. A fallen earth. An earth contaminated by sin. An earth in which the curse which came upon the human race as a result of our first parents' sin had something to do with childbirth. You'll remember, after the fall, the Lord comes to the garden and begins to dole out curses to everyone who is involved. That's what we've called them. He speaks to the serpent, says, you, you're going to go along on your belly. And he says to the man, you're going to toil in the ground. There's going to be thorns and thistles. It's not going to be as easy as pulling a piece of fruit off a tree anymore. And he says to the woman, you're going to have pain in childbirth. So going all the way back to the fall, we're seeing that childbirth is involved in this earth. So that's our starting point. That which we're going to find here in Leviticus 12 is not part of a law spoken into a perfect world. It's part of a law spoken into a broken world. That's where we begin. At the same time, we need to be careful that we don't draw unwarranted conclusions from this. Let me give you, as we begin to look at the text, just a a few clarifications so we don't go off track from the very beginning. And let's start here, first of all. We've got to be clear that the uncleanness mentioned in Leviticus chapter 12 is not directly to do with sin and moral uncleanness in regard to those who are involved. That is, what we find here is certainly tied up in the fact that the world is fallen, but it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the fact that a particular mother has committed any kind of sin. Every mother is told that 
when she has given birth for a specific period of time, she is unclean. And then she's told, as we'll see in the second part of this passage, what she is to do about that uncleanness. We saw in the previous chapter that the animals declared to be clean or unclean were declared so not because there was any kind of moral quality within them. Pigs aren't worse sinners than sheep. Now, you might make a case for it. Pigs have a gluttony issue, I understand. But that wasn't what was going on. There's no moral difference between the pig and the sheep. There was another reason altogether for the clean-unclean distinction. And that's what we're seeing here as well. Secondly, there is no thought communicated here or anywhere else in Scripture that sexual relationships within the bonds of marriage are in any way sinful or unholy. Or that they pollute a person morally or spiritually, despite what some misguided people have said through the history of the church. Children are seen as a blessing from God. The original command made by God before the fall was to be fruitful and multiply. And that was repeated after the flood to Noah as well. It's a sacred thing for human beings created in the image of God to be able to reproduce other beings capable of having a personal relationship with God and of acting as God's representatives on earth exercising authority over the created order. Nevertheless, the entrance of sin into the world has brought about a massive disturbance and all kinds of trouble. God's curse affected human beings at every level. It brought about suffering and hardship and death. Even the blessing of bearing children would become burdensome. Now, for those of us who are in easy reach of modern medical equipment and modern medical services, we probably don't appreciate just how dangerous giving birth can be. Even so, with all of our sophisticated helps, the experience can be a harrowing and frightening and painful experience, I'm told. Mothers giving birth to children are bringing new life into a world marred by the fall. Now, some out in the world who hear a statement like that would ask, then why do it? It seems people have all kinds of reasons today why children should not be brought into the world. But the Scripture tells us, no, the fact that people are going to be born into a fallen world does not change the fact that children are a blessing from God. All these 
physical signs of being under the judgment of God point to the fact of sin and its ultimate penalty in the second death. Though the birth of a baby is and should be generally seen as a happy event, God would have us understand that it is tinged with sadness. Human beings are creating and reproducing creatures who, like themselves, are corrupt and sinful. This is what David was referring to in Psalm 51 when he spoke of having been brought forth in iniquity and having been conceived by his mother in sin. And he didn't mean that his mother had done anything wrong. David was not besmirching the reputation of his mother. He wasn't saying that in that union between David's father and mother, there was some problem morally. That's not the case. What he was saying is, every one of us in our conception is contaminated by sin. There has been no human being since Adam who has not been born into sin save one, and his name was Jesus. He was not commenting on any moral failing on the part of his mother. He was talking about the effect that original sin had in being passed on to him and in which he stood guilty before God and in need of a Redeemer. So with all that, we turn to the text. The chapter divides itself up into two sections. The first in verses 1 through 5 discusses the uncleanness of a mother, and then in verses 6 through 8 we find the instructions for the sacrifice which addresses that uncleanness. So that's where we're going. So verses 1 through 5 you have the uncleanness, and in verses 1 through 4 we're looking at specifically the uncleanness due to the birth of a male child. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, When a woman gives birth and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days. As in the days of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall remain in the blood of her purification. For thirty-three days, she shall not touch any consecrated thing, nor enter the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. So if the mother gives birth to a boy, then she is considered to be unclean for seven days. And We have to emphasize again the fact that the mother is not unclean because of any moral quality or lack thereof, it, not because it was sought sinful to give birth. What makes her unclean, verse 7, is the flow of her blood. During the first few days, the postnatal discharge, we call it lochia, is crimson red. That state of uncleanness is similar to the uncleanness associated with a woman's customary impurity, her menstruation, her monthly period. 
it probably meant that during those seven days after the birth of her son, she was contagiously unclean, as was the case when a woman started her period, so that her uncleanness affected other people or things through contact. After the seventh day following the birth, the discharge would continue for some time, but grow paler, less like blood. And this is possibly the reason why the law considered the woman to be in the blood of her purification for a further 33 days. She was still in an unclean condition, although not to the same degree. During the whole time of her ritual uncleanness, she could not touch any hallowed thing nor come into the sanctuary. This is an important statement because it shows clearly what is meant by the uncleanness. Uncleanness is not to be thought of in terms of some vague cultural taboo, but in terms of worshiping God with his people. To be in a state of uncleanness meant that a person could not come with the assembled people to worship at the tabernacle. That was the point. All these laws concerning uncleanness and cleanness have reference to approaching God's earthly sanctuary. They're spoken of in terms of worship. They were meant to be visual aids to remind the people of spiritual realities. In particular, they spoke of that first great human rebellion. They spoke of that first great human rebellion which brought moral uncleanness into the race when Adam and Eve were removed from God's presence and from the garden. We have a saying in the English language. Time heals all wounds. Well, apparently time purifies as well. We're told that she is unclean until the days of her purification are fulfilled. It took 40 days in all for a mother who gave birth to a son to be ritually clean again. We don't read of any ritual washings, as we do in other circumstances. Time alone brings an end to this uncleanness. We're faced again with the biblical principle that uncleanness is incompatible with holiness. The unclean cannot come into the presence of God because God is holy. This has obvious implications when we think about the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is that which makes us clean so that we can enter into the presence of God, so that we can be reconciled to Him, so that God could then tell us, because we find our cleanliness in Christ, to come boldly before His throne. This is the gospel. We are, in our natural state, unclean. We are sinful, both by nature and by act. 
And so we need to be cleansed. And that cleansing comes through the blood of Jesus Christ who went to the cross in our place. And God has said that if we will simply turn from our sin and trust in Jesus Christ, by that faith alone, we will be cleansed. We will be made whiter than snow. We will be justified. And in union with Christ, we become the people of God. The adopted children of God. Not because we have done anything in and of ourselves to cleanse ourselves. We cannot do that. Not because we have any righteousness of our own. But because we stand by faith in the righteousness of Jesus. And we are cleansed, washed, purified by His blood. Shed for us. There's a late 19th century hymn which makes this point. There is a city bright. Closed are its gates to sin. Not that defileth, not that defileth can ever enter in. There's one way to be cleansed. And that is through a substitutionary sacrifice. Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ as pictured in the Old Testament sacrifices which we're seeing here in Leviticus. The sacrifice of Christ is that to which all those animal sacrifices pointed. And they were intended to drive home this point. You cannot cleanse yourself. You need to be cleansed. You need to be made righteous. And God provides that way in His Son, Jesus Christ. So the law required that a baby son was to be also circumcised on the eighth day. This goes all the way back to Genesis, of course. The sign of God's covenant with Abraham was associated with the organ of reproduction, thus emphasizing God's promise that He would have he, Abraham, would have many descendants and that they would become a great nation. Which, is, of course, is what God has done. Remember where we are in Leviticus. God has taken His people out of Egypt and He's taking them to a promised land. When they went into Egypt, they were a family but not a nation. Now that He has taken them out of Egypt, out of bondage, in the Exodus, they are a nation. The, the, the promise made to Abraham is being fulfilled. The seed of Abraham is associated then with the royal seed of the tribe of Judah who would bring blessing to all nations, and that, of course, is Jesus Christ, we're told. But this passage here in Leviticus not only reminds us of God's covenant with Abraham, it takes us back to the beginning, to that promise made in Genesis 3, right after the fall, that there would be a victorious seed of the woman. That there would be a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And that was just a strange thing. Because women don't have seed. Men have seed. 
Women don't have seed. So what is that all about? Well, as the progressive revelation of God goes on, we find that that seed, of course, is Jesus Christ, who, born of a virgin, is the seed of the woman. Because there is no seed of a father. Here, it's a very interesting thing. We're taken back to that promise in Genesis chapter 3. The Hebrew word translated in verse 2 gives birth is that word seed. Your translation may have conceived or something else. In the New American Standard, it says, when a woman gives birth and bears a male child. And if you've got marginal notes, you might have this in those notes, that in verse 2, that phrase gives birth literally is produces seed. When a woman produces seed and bears a male child. In the creation account, yielding seed and yielding fruit are parallel expressions referring to what the trees and the vegetables produce. And it's being, that idea is being used here in terms of human beings. When God first blessed humans, he said, be fruitful and multiply. So we're looking at the seed, right? the woman producing seed. She's obeying that command. She's being fruitful. The, the, the child within her is referred to as the fruit of the womb. Here in Leviticus, the parallel idea of the woman yielding or producing fruit, uh, seed is found. It, this is what we're finding here. Moses is drawing our attention to the promise of the woman's seed gaining victory over the root cause of all uncleanness and every detestable object. When the first couple disobeyed the divine command, God pronounced a curse and a blessing, both of which involved the woman and childbearing. The divine punishment on the human pair did not result in, the, in, in withdrawing the blessing of being fruitful and producing offspring, but it did involve pain and eventual death. In particular, the woman would experience pain in childbirth. Nevertheless, a new blessing was promised in that the woman's seed would crush the tempter's head. This is the seed or the descendant that lies at the heart of God's covenant promises to Abraham. The woman's part in bearing that seed is alluded to here, but it's said in the context of the uncleanness that separates human beings from all that is holy and prevents their free access to that holy God who is. And at the time that a mother delivers new life, she also loses life in that she loses blood. And biblically, blood is that symbol of life. That's why in, in, in discussion of the sacrifice of Christ, blood and death are used interchangeably. When we talk about Jesus shedding His blood on the cross, we mean that He died on the cross. That His death 
was sacrificial and substitutionary. The discharge of blood can therefore be seen as life-threatening. Losing blood after childbirth means a diminution of life. Unless it is stopped, it can lead to death. We've already seen in regard to animals that death itself is unclean. One cannot touch a dead animal carcass without becoming unclean. This flow of blood is, in some sense, a loss of life, and as a result, it is incompatible with God, the source of life, and the source of all that is wholesome. Anything suggesting death, therefore, was treated as unclean and unfit to come into God's presence unless something is done to restore cleanliness. That's what we'll see in the last verses of this chapter. So in verses 1 through 4, we find a woman becoming unclean because of the death of a son. But what about a daughter? We find this in verse 5. What if she bears a female child? Then she shall be unclean for two weeks, as in her menstruation. And she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 66 days. If a mother gave birth to a daughter, her time of uncleanness was twice as long as that for a son. In all, 80 as opposed to 40 days. Instead of being contagiously unclean for one week in case of a boy... She would be unclean for two weeks, and instead of a further 33 days to complete her period of purification, it would take 66 days. And scholars, I will tell you, have scratched their heads over why the period of purification is longer for a baby boy, or for a baby girl rather than for a baby boy. Part of the answer, it seems, lies in the fact that a baby son, at least in that first aspect. A baby son was circumcised on the eighth day after birth, and so the initial period of uncleanness is reduced to a week so that that circumcision could happen. But the longer period of a mother's uncleanness, in in, in the case of a female child, probably takes account of the fact that it anticipates the girl's own association with blood discharges when she is of age. At least some have put that forth as a conjecture. In the end, I have to tell you, I don't know. And we've got to remain content sometimes with the fact that Scripture doesn't always explain everything as much as we would like. And we need to remain content here with the fact that the difference is simply not explained. So, now what? Given the uncleanness, what is a mother to do about it, whether boy or girl? Verses 6 through 8 tell us, When the days of her purification are completed, for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the doorway of the tent of meeting a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering, and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. So two different offerings. 
Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her, that is the priest, and she shall be cleansed from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, whether a male or a female. But if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons for one the one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. So at the end of her period of purification, whether for the birth of a son or a daughter, the mother is instructed to offer two sacrifices, a burnt offering and a guilt offering, or burnt offering and a sin offering. Now we notice in passing that this instruction is one of the few places in the Old Testament it actually makes it clear that a woman could themselves make sacrifice at the tabernacle. Other sacrifices is always the husband. He's going to come as the covenant head of his family. But when it comes to this, the women come themselves. They bring their own sacrifices. So, It's worthy to notice as well that the sacrifices to be offered by the mother are the same whether it's a boy or a girl. So although there are differences, what we find here is that human beings, whether male or female, are equal in value before God, all created in the image of God, both male and female, Genesis tells us. The burnt offering on this occasion was to consist of a lamb of the first year. In the case of mothers who were too poor or uh, to, 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 to offer such an expensive offering, it could be substituted by two doves or two pigeons. Because this was a required offering, it was necessary to make this provision for poor families. You'll remember, if you go back and you read through the account in Luke of the birth of Christ, this was the offering that Mary brought, emphasizing the poverty into which Jesus was born. Besides the propitiatory element, the sacrifice may well have been considered a thanksgiving offering for the gift of the child as well. Burnt offerings as well as peace offerings were both brought as an expression of gratitude. So that was the burnt offering. The second offering is the sin offering. A pigeon or a dove is required for this sin offering. This expiatory offering was the final act in the mother's return to the worship of God at the tabernacle. She was, in the fullest sense, ceremonially clean, we're told in verse 7, from the flow of her blood as a result of this sacrifice. And this makes it clear that it was blood discharge following a birth, not any kind of misconduct that necessitated these sacrifices and that brought about the uncleanness. (laughs) Furthermore, the chapter shows that while her own blood made her unclean, she could come near into God's holy place with a substitute blood sacrifice that was acceptable to God for her purification. Gordon Wenham puts it this way, Blood is at once the most effective ritual cleanser and the most polluting substance when it is in the wrong 
place. Now, what do we take away from this? We are to see looming behind all of this uncleanness and all of the ritual that results from it, the shadow of the cross. The cross of Jesus displays the greater mystery to which these old Sinai regulations point. At the very place where human sinfulness is seen in all its profound ugliness, there we see God's amazing love for sinners. The cleanest of all people was found in the most unclean place, bearing the uncleanliness of sin, so that sinners who look to him might be able to enter in to relationship with God. Think of it. What kind of a place was Calvary? What kind of a place was Golgotha? It was called the place of a skull. It was the place of blood. It was the place of death. It wasn't that the Roman soldiers that day had some unusual task to perform and then sat around wondering where they should do it. That hill upon which Christ was crucified was the hill of death. It was the hill where the Romans regularly performed their crucifixions. It was the hill where blood flowed freely and often and where death always followed. It was at that place amid ruin and decay and death that God's perfect sacrifice for human uncleanness was offered to bring cleansing to sinners. Through this very traumatic and dangerous experience to a mother's life, God directed His people to these spiritual realities. It had nothing to do with the specific sin of the mother, though every mother is and was a sinner. Rather, it had to do with communication. God was speaking. Sin has made us unclean, and we are in the most unwholesome state because the wages of sin is death. But God has provided a way for us to become clean. And that way is through the shedding of blood. He has provided the great and final sacrifice and the gift of His own precious Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, conceived by the Holy Spirit, yet born into our world the way all babies enter it. When the time came, Mary gave birth to her firstborn son, and he was, as Paul explains in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, born of a woman, a real human being, born into a pious Jewish home where the law of Moses was reflect what was respected. Paul says that he was born under the law. And this is why his parents had him circumcised on the eighth day. 
Then 33 days later, when Mary's period of purification was over, according to the law of Moses, we're told there in Luke, his parents came with Jesus to the temple to offer the necessary sacrifices, both for his mother's ritual cleansing and in order to present their firstborn son to the Lord. All the requirements of the law were carried out, and it is in that same context of fulfilling all righteousness that Jesus set himself to go to the cross. He did this to redeem those who were under the curse of the law so that we might experience the blessing of sonship through the Spirit. You look at the birth narrative of our Savior and you see Leviticus 12. And you see in Leviticus 12 that sacrifice which saves us. That sacrifice which alone can save us, can make us clean, can purify us. Christ is here in Leviticus chapter 12. Christ is everywhere in the Old Testament. And Christ is here with us now. His people who have come to faith in Him and who have been purified by His blood. Praise God. That offer is extended to everyone. Notice, just as we close, when the Lord spoke to Moses, what did he say? Speak to the sons of Israel when a woman gives birth. Any woman. Moses is to speak to the entire nation. And the instruction that God gives through Moses is for any woman of Israel who gives birth. Likewise, the gospel goes forth now under the new covenant to anyone who has ears to hear. To anyone who will recognize their own uncleanness and desire to be purified. And the gospel goes forth with the good news that God has provided a sacrifice. We don't need sheep, and we don't need pigeons, and we don't need doves. God has given the sacrifice, and His name is Jesus Christ. And if we will but trust in Him, we will be cleansed. Scripture uses the term justified. We will be declared to be innocent before God. Sin forgiven, past, present, and future joined together in union with Christ as children of God to be kept by Him forever. If you have not heard this before, if this is not something that you have come to grips with, I trust that you will do so today. Today, the Scripture says, is the day of salvation. If you know yourself to be unclean before a holy God, that can change today. Come to Christ. Give your sin to Him and He will cast it as far as the east is from the west. And by His blood, you will be clean. Father, we pray that 
you would accomplish good things through your word today. We want to thank you for the reminder of your great grace, which brings us cleansing and purification through Jesus Christ. Father, as we come to the Lord's table now, may we be reminded once again of the glory and the grace that you have bestowed upon us in your Son, Jesus. These things we thank you for in his name. Amen.